0: good morning it is uh, it is a blessing to be with you um, we love this church we're thankful for this church um, and it is an honor for me to be able to address you uh, from the scriptures this morning um, I know that Trev just prayed but I'm going to just ask for the Lord's help once more uh, as we turn to the scriptures uh, so bow with me again briefly as I ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we do, uh, we do need your help. We are poor and we are needy. But we are grateful that you take thought for us in our need. Uh, it is your spirit who gives life. Uh, the flesh is no help at all, and yet the words that you have spoken, they are spirit and they are life, and so we pray that you would be pleased to meet us now in your word, that you would strengthen your saints, and that you would perhaps even be pleased to call some out of darkness and into your marvelous light this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Saints, how are you faring uh, in your journey towards the promised land? I I wonder if that's a strange kind of question, maybe a question that you've not really thought about. How are you faring on your journey to the promised land? We have many, many things that occupy us, things that keep us busy right here and now. Uh, They may be particular adversities or challenges that we know with regard to our health or our finances or our careers. We may look outside at the world around us and see so much social and political upheaval, and we may be concerned and burdened for the way that we see this world and this nation turning. And we may be so easily occupied with those Things and many other things that you could certainly add to that list. It is easy to become so occupied with those things that we actually lose sight of the fact we can forget that we are pilgrims passing through this world on our way somewhere else to the promised land. Uh, this, this theme of being on a journey from somewhere to somewhere else is it's been flowing through the service. Have you noticed that? We, we sang of being almost home. This journey, ours together, we're almost home. Uh, that, that passage in Isaiah 35 that uh, Jeremy read to us spoke of a highway that the people of God are on called the, the Way of Holiness. And then from John 14, we were reminded Jesus uh, comforted his disciples by speaking of his departure. He was going away to prepare a place for them, and he promised them that he was going to come again to bring them to that place that he had prepared. Uh, We're here, and there is much to be thankful for. We experience much blessing and good here, but we really long to be there. The Christian's walk, the Christian life, is a journey from somewhere to somewhere else. That's what the life of faith is. And we all need regular reminders of that because, uh, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, the way is hard. Uh, the, The word literally means afflicted. The way is afflicted that leads to life. And in the regular throes of life amidst various kinds of trials, unanswered and unanswerable questions, our own doubts and struggles and sin, we can begin at times to wonder about the success of this journey that we're on. We can be tempted to lose heart. I wonder if you've ever had the experience where you're driving through a, a downpour, a storm, and it can become a little bit scary because those windshield wipers just aren't able, they can't move fast enough. And you're, you're, you're traveling on and you begin to grow a bit fearful and concerned because you can't see where you're going. And we can be like that in our journey towards the promised land, those pressures, those trials, those inner and outer tribulations that we find can dim our vision of where we're going, and so this morning we want to look at one of the reminders that there are in Scripture, there are many of them, but one of the reminders of where we're headed, and I hope it will be for your edification and for your encouragement and for your endurance on this journey in which we are taking together. So uh, you can open in your Bibles to First Peter, chapter one. Peter uh, wrote this letter. I look back at the archives, and this is actually you preached on this passage—not this particular verse, but on this chapter on Easter Sunday. So you may have some familiarity with this letter that Peter wrote, that we call First Peter. Uh, he was writing largely to promote this kind of encouragement and endurance in the lives of the believers that he was addressing in the first century who were experiencing all kinds of fiery trials. And uh, what I want to do this morning is just take one verse from this letter today, and with God's help, I pray that it does encourage you in this afflicted way that leads to life as we think together about the destination that we are headed to. So hear God's word this morning. To us from First Peter, chapter one, one verse is our attention, uh, is our focus this morning. First 1 Peter 1:13. 1, therefore and we will come back to that, therefore. therefore is our important. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's such a short passage. I'll read it again. I have a friend who often when he's preaching, he'll say as he reads from the scriptures, and it just came to my mind, so I said, this is the best part of the sermon. Right here. This is the best part. Therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think the main point of that verse, if I was to summarize it, is that we, as the people of God, we ought to labor earnestly to acquaint ourselves with the glories of heaven. And that's what I want to encourage you in this morning, Saints labor earnestly to acquaint yourselves. I might add the word there, actually, affectionately acquaint yourselves. Because hoping in something is not just knowing about something. There's an affection for that destination. Labor earnestly to affectionately acquaint yourselves with the glories of heaven. I wonder if that's on your to-do list this week. I would encourage it to be. I would encourage you to give some thought this afternoon to how you might make that a reality this week, to acquaint yourselves affectionately with the glories of heaven. I want us to consider that main point By noting first in the passage, the object of our hope, Peter speaks of grace that is to come to you at the revelation of the Lord Jesus. So I want us to think about that, the object of our hope, that grace that is to come. And then I want us to think about this call to earnest labor in setting that hope before us, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. So, we'll think about the object of our hope and we'll think about the earnest labor that we are called to in setting that hope before us. Now, before we think specifically about this grace that is coming to us at the revelation of Christ, I do want to make absolutely certain here at the outset that we understand who it is that's being addressed in this exhortation, uh, whose hope this hope actually is. Peter speaks in verse 13 of setting your hope on the grace that is to come to you at the revelation of Christ. And it's as if Peter knows he is assuming at this point that the hope that he's writing of is in fact theirs, but I don't want to merely assume that this morning in this gathering. I want to make sure that it is crystal clear to you that the you in view in 1 Peter 13 is a believing you. You. There was once a time when you were without God and without hope in this world. If I could borrow the Apostle Paul's wording from Ephesians chapter 2. Or to speak of it as, as Peter does here in the following verses of 1 Peter 1. There was a time that you were bound in the passions, verse 14 says, of your former Ignorance you had inherited ways of futility from your forefathers. Once, Peter says in chapter 2, verse 10, once you were not a people, once you had not received mercy, once you were walking in darkness. But then, God did something by his all-powerful grace. It was a grace that began in eternity past where we were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God's electing love. That's what Peter writes at the very beginning when he says, "...you are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father." That grace began in eternity and it continued on when we were consecrated, when we were sanctified to God, when we were devoted to God and to his holy purposes by the sanctification of the spirit. And it was grace that sprinkled us with the blood of Christ, marking us out for obedience to Christ. It was grace that caused us, verse four says, or is it verse three, verse three, that caused us to be born again. To be born again means this is a time that you, there was a time that you were not alive. You had no spiritual pulse, but in God's grace, he caused you to be born again to a living hope, and that through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and that resurrection and that new birth has secured For God's people, an eternal inheritance that is being kept for us in heaven. Even as we are now being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This you being addressed in verse 13 is the same you being described in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So you see, I just want to make sure that's all, all, I'm saying all that because of the word therefore in verse 13. He's already said some things about who this you is and they're the you who've been elected by the foreknowledge of God, sanctified by the spirit for obedience to Christ and sprinkling with his blood, this you that's been born again to a living hope, this you that has not seen Jesus physically with your eyes but you love him, you believe in him, you rejoice in him with joy that is unspeakable and filled with glory. Is that you I'm asking now? Is that you this morning? This you in 1 Peter 1.13 is a believing you. Once, if it is you, once you were not a people, but now by the grace of God, you have become God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Mercy that ransomed you from those futile, hopeless ways, not with silver and gold, but actually ransomed you, bought you, By the precious blood of the spotlessly innocent Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, through him, through Christ, you are now believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Is that you this morning? Can you testify, can you heartily, enthusiastically affirm that when you were resisting him, when you were walking away from him, Jesus came and saved you? This this news that though you are vile, yet you are loved. Though you are a sinner, yet Christ is a great and faithful and merciful Savior, Though you wanted nothing to do with God, he actually, in his grace, wanted everything to do with you. This news made its way to your ears and somehow, by the sovereign grace of God, penetrated your hearts and you were given the sense, this is what it means to be born again to this living hope, you were given a sense that this is the only way to have, the only hope of having a happy Forever is in God's presence with God's people in God's place, and He moved upon your dead heart, called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, enabled you to see something of the infinitely a precious worth of his son, Jesus, whereas once maybe you thought of him as foolish, as boring, as irrelevant, but now you've begun to calculate differently and you see in Jesus a pearl of great price. You see him to be a treasure hidden in a field. You're willing to count everything else as rubbish. I believe you just came to that in your study of the book of Philippians. You counted everything else to be rubbish in view of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus And he enabled you, he opened your eyes, he shined his light into your heart so that you could see that, turn from your sin, turn from your foolishness and begin to follow Jesus. What what mighty sovereign grace that is and that can happen to you right now if it's not happened to you. He he is this this hope that we're going to speak of. He is delaying to come. He's delaying bringing that hope to us, so that there would be more time for people to come to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. And so, if you're here this morning and you have not found your hope in Jesus. The Lord has brought you here today to hear that you can leave this life of futility. You can leave this life of being without hope and without God in the world. And you can turn from your sin, from the passions of your ignorance, and you can enter into the realm, the sphere of the sweet grace of God saving you and sustaining you and perfecting you. You can today become a part of the you of 1 Peter 1.13. And I call you, I invite you and urge you to put your faith in the Lord Jesus today. And if you've not done that, please do speak to uh, Ben or myself or anyone else that you've seen up here this morning. Talk to someone about how you might do that. You gotta know that before we get into verse Peter, verse, uh, chapter one, verse 13. Peter is writing this letter he is speaking of this hope to those who have experienced that awesome, saving, ransoming, resurrecting grace. And now, having laid that foundation in the opening verses of the letter, he turns to set the gaze of his readers upon future grace. Grace, verse 13 sa- says, that is to be brought to you at the revelation of the Lord Jesus. That revelation would be speaking of his return. The idea is that Jesus is present, and Jesus is reigning, and Jesus is glorious, and Jesus is victorious even now, but it's hidden. We don't go out in the world. We don't turn the news on. It does not look like Jesus is reigning victoriously, does it? But he is His reign now and his rule is hidden. The day is coming when Jesus comes and his glory will be revealed. And and that is the object of hope. That is what we are to set our hope fully in. Paul speaks of it as our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we want to know a little bit of what it is. What is that like? To set our hope fully. Upon it, we've got to be acquainted with it. And yet this is a little bit challenging. How how do you begin to describe the indescribable? Paul speaks of it in 1 Corinthians 2, "What, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. How can we speak of it? We can't even imagine it. And yet, Uh, A lot of us know that verse. You've heard that verse before, right? No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart the heart of man has not imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. The next words in the passage are these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So by the Spirit-inspired word, though we can't fully grasp it, we can get a glimpse of that future grace to whet the appetite of our hope for it. Here in this very letter, Peter gives us some language, at least. He gives us words to be able to begin to think about the great grace of it. So, if if Bibles are still open, if you look there at verse 17, he talks about the tested genuineness of our faith being found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of the Lord Jesus. So what is this future? What is this hope coming to us? It's a life of praise and glory and honor. And if you were to ask me, well, is that talking about the glory and praise and honor of Jesus on that final day? Or is it the glory and praise and honor of us on that day? I would say that's a good question. And the answer is yes. Of course, we know, and and I know you sing it often, all glory be to Christ. All is to the glory and praise of Christ. But I do believe here because this is the reward, the result of the, the refining of the faith of God's people. This is, I believe, specifically speaking of praise and glory and honor that will be ours on that final day. We were reminded earlier in the service, in the scriptural call to worship, that we, on that final day, will appear with Christ in glory. 1 Peter 2.7 speaks that there will be honor on that final day to those who believe, as opposed to the shame of those who have rejected Jesus to their own destruction. Paul says in Romans chapter 2 that of those whose hearts have been born again, those who have been circumcised in their hearts, whose faith and hope are in God, that they will receive their praise from God. So there is praise and there is glory and there is honor awaiting the people of God at the revelation of the Lord Jesus. And then that's at the beginning of the letter. At the close of the letter, uh, Peter having exhorted the readers to be sober and to be watchful and to resist the devil and to humble themselves under God's mighty hand that in due time he might exalt us. That'd be another word you could add. Praise, glory, glory honor, exaltation. Then Peter concludes with these hope-giving words of the grace that is to come. He says in 1 Peter five ten, after you have suffered a little while, and I love that. I mean, I don't love that. Let me be, be clear what I mean. <laughs> Nobody loves suffering. If you love suffering, you have issues. Talk to Ben afterwards. <laughs> I love that it says a little while. A little while. Suffering has some painful words to speak to us, but they're not the last word. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. There's four more words that you can just reflect upon. There's praise, there's glory, there's honor. He's going to exalt you in due time if you humble yourself under his mighty hand. And on that final day, after you've suffered for a little while, he's going to restore you. He's going to heal up and mend all that has wounded you in this world full of affliction. He's going to restore and he's going to confirm. He's going to make you firm and secure. Unshakeable. He's going to strengthen you from every weakness that you have been made to suffer in this pilgrimage through this barren land, and he's going to establish you in the rightful place. It, sa- it says this would almost be blasphemous if it, wa- it would be blasphemous if this wasn't written in the Bible. He's going to establish you to sit with him on his throne. It says in Revelation three: for those who conquer, for those who overcome, who persevere in faith, he, Je- the Lord Jesus says to the people of. God, God, I will allow you, I will make you to sit with me on my throne. He's going to establish you in the place for which he has prepared for you. He's going to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And if you wonder whether he's really able to come through on such grand and lofty promises, Peter wants us to make sure that we know who it is who's making those promises, because he says in 1 Peter 5.11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Yeah. Amen. Amen. I will say this for Ben's edification right now. This, I got notes. I was told I guess have no y'all just you're, you have a long greeting time. you started 10 minutes late. You are not pressed to get out of here. I praise God for that. So I would just add in for 60 seconds for Ben's sake, um, because he's been very deliberate with this, and I don't know if you've caught that. You will never discourage the man who is standing up here preaching God's word. You will never discourage him if as you are hearing him proclaim the word of God and your soul is resonating with what the man is saying, if you communicate that verbally in some form by saying like the word amen or praise God or hallelujah or yes, that will not discourage the people who come here and preach. To him be the dominion forever and ever. He will not be thwarted in bringing praise and glory and honor and exaltation and restoring and confirming and strengthening and establishing grace to you. That's all coming to you, believing you. And we're called to set our hope fully on that coming grace. Labor to be Affectionately acquainted with the glories of heaven. Now, one man who did this, who who labored to be acquainted with the glories of heaven, is a a man named Richard Baxter. Uh, I have to mention him. I feel like I should mention him because I'm preaching this message to you largely because of his influence. In my life, and the influence of a book that he wrote in the year 1650, called "The Saint's Everlasting Rest," uh, Baxter. He he actually. This, I mean, I can't get into all the background of this 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 book, uh, "The Saint's Everlasting Rest." It looks like this is the abridged version. It was and I'm not exaggerating, it, it was actually 10 times longer than this. This is the, th- you, this is the tithe of the book, uh, edited and abridged by one Tim Cooper. I don't believe there's any relation, but if there is, if your brother-in-law had a hand in this, give him my thanks. Um, I can't get into all the background of the book, but, but Richard Baxter actually wrote this book. He thought he was dying. He had a medical issue and a loss of blood, and he thought he was dying, and he began to write his reflections for what he originally intended to be his funeral sermon. Well, he recovered, and he ended up living 40 more years. But God used Richard Baxter's confrontation with death to give the church one of the great resources outside of scripture ever to be published on the glories of heaven. And I, I, would, I would love to just read for you about two hours of this book right now. But I, I, will, I, want to just, I will just give you a sampling of his reflections. I will just allow one member of that ever increasing number of the cloud of witnesses who are testifying to us, who are calling us to keep running that race, fixing our eyes on Jesus, right? That cloud of witnesses, Hebrews 11 and 12 talk about. I'm just going to let this one witness testify of this rest that is coming. He called it a rest based on Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, where it says there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. He said this rest contains a cessation from all motion or action that implies the absence of the end. When we have reached the harbor, we have finished sailing. When the workman has his wages, he has completed his work. Thus... There will be no more prayer because there will be no more necessity, only the full enjoyment of what we prayed for. We will not need to fast, weep, or watch anymore, being out of reach of sin and temptations, nor will we need instruction and exhortation. Preaching is done. Ministry ceases. The sacraments are now past their use. The laborers are called in because the harvest is gathered. The unregenerate are past hope. The saints are past fear forever. Baxter says it will be a future. What is this grace coming to us in the future? It will be a future of perfect freedom. This rest contains a perfect freedom from all the evils that accompanied us through our course in this world. For nothing enters heaven that defiles or is unclean. Doubtless, there is no such thing as grief or sorrow there, nor is there such a thing as a pale face, feeble joints, languishing sickness, groaning fears, consuming cares, or whatever deserves the name of evil. A gale of groans and a stream of tears will accompany us to the very gates, and there they will bid us farewell. Forever. Our sorrow will be turned into joy, and no one will take our joy from us. It will be a future of perfect love. Stop and think for a moment what a state this will be. Is it no small thing in your eyes to be beloved of God, to be the son, the spouse, the love, and the delight of the King of glory? Christian, believe this and think on it. You will be eternally embraced in the arms of that love that is from everlasting to everlasting. That love that brought the son of God's love from heaven to earth, from earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave, and from the grave to glory. This is the same love that was weary Hungry, tempted, scorned, scourged, buffeted, spit upon, crucified, and pierced. This is the love that fasted, prayed, taught, healed, wept, sweated, bled, and died. This is the love that will eternally embrace you. It will be a future of perfect joy. Even the inconceivable pleasure and satisfaction that the blessed saints will feel in seeing, knowing, loving, and being beloved of God. Oh, what joy that will be when we are perfectly prepared for joy and that joy is perfectly prepared by Christ. We will make it our work and our business eternally to rejoice. Our joy is the joy of the Lord and we will enter his joy. You poor soul who now <laughs> prays for joy, waits for joy, complains for lack of joy and longs for joy, behold, then you will have full joy Amen. as much as you can hold and more than you ever conceived conceived or your heart desired. We will then have joy without sorrow, rest without weariness, as there will be no mixture of our corruption with our capacities, so we will have no mixture of suffering with our comfort. There will be none of those waves in that harbor that now so toss us up and down. I wonder if you've ever felt like this. One moment, we are at the gates of heaven. In the next, we're almost as low as hell. You ever had that in a day? Yeah. We wonder at those changes of providence toward us, being scarcely two days together in the same condition. Today we are well, and we conclude that the bitterness of death is past. Tomorrow, we are sick and conclude that we will shortly perish by our illness. Today, we are in gladness. Tomorrow, in sadness. But there is none of this inconstancy in heaven. If perfect love casts out fear, then perfect joy must cast out sorrow. And perfect happiness will exclude all the remnants of our misery. Our first and earthly paradise in Eden had a way out, but no way back in that we could find. This eternal paradise has a way in, but no way out again. It is the saints everlasting rest. Should I keep, I mean, are you getting tired of this? Are you getting tired of these glimpses? Yes. Somebody said yes. Some honest child said yes. Praise God for honesty. I'm going to keep going. It will be a future. I have to say this. I can't pass over this paragraph. It will be a future of perfect holiness of complete and final rest from sin that may be the best part i mean jesus being with him is the best part but being without sin is actually a whole lot better even than being without sickness once you are in heaven you will sin no more is this not good news to you who have prayed watched and labored against sin for so long I know if you had the choice, you would choose to be freed from sin rather than be made heir of all the world. Well, wait until then and you will have your desire. That hard heart, those vile thoughts that lie down and rise with you, that accompany you to every duty, that you could no more leave behind than you leave your very self behind will now be left behind forever. No pride, no passion, Slothfulness or senselessness will enter with us. No strangeness to God and to the things of God. No coldness of affections or imperfection in our love. Uh, No uneven walking or grieving of the spirit. No scandalous action or unholy walking. We will rest from all these forever. And all all of this, remember, remember saints, all this is grace. Grace. All this is grace. All this is not what we deserve. All this is the bountiful and free and generous gift of God. I'm going to read you one more quote that I didn't write out. The second point is shorter. Oh, the everlasting admiration that must seize the saints to think of this freeness. What did the Lord see in me that he should judge me fit for such a state? That I who was but a poor, diseased, despised wretch should be clad in the brightness of this glory. That I who was so recently groaning, weeping, dying should now be as full of joy as my heart can hold that I should be taken from the grave where I was rotting and stinking and from the dust and darkness where I seemed forgotten and now here be set before his throne. Oh, who can fathom this immeasurable love? (sighs) There's more. There's, okay, Is anybody... Have I whetted anybody's appetite? Would you anyone would like one of these? You can just raise your hand, Greg. Noah, can you pay, can you give that to Greg Giordano? And and I actually have one more. Was your was your was your appetite? A, there's a lot more. I don't I don't know your name, but this Laura. It is a. It is, it is an encouragement, I did not say this at the beginning, but it's an encouragement, while it's wonderful to be with familiar faces, it is an encouragement to see unfamiliar faces. And that is an evidence of God's grace in this congregation. So, you can pa- we, you know, read it and pass it on, I could only bring two with me today, but giving out books is my love language. Um, that's just a little taste of our guided tour to the glory that is coming, the grace that is coming to us at the revelation of Christ. And, and Baxter says, thus, thus I, haven't, now I'm not, I hope I'm not preaching this man. I'm just allowing this man to exposit for us the grace that is to come at the revelation of Christ. Why should I try to do it when he's done it so well? And it's preserved for 350 years or whatever, 370 years. Thus, I have endeavored to show you a glimpse of the approaching glory. But my expressions fall too far short of its excellency. Reader, that would be you, listener. If you're a humble, sincere believer and wait with longing and laboring for this rest, you will shortly see and feel the truth of all this, and then you will have a full apprehension of this blessed state. Let even the little I have said kindle your desires and energize your efforts. Be up and doing. Run, strive, Fight, hold on, for you have a certain and glorious prize before you. And that exhortation really leads us to the second part of 1 Peter 1.13, or the second part of the sermon, which I promise will be shorter. I have sought to acquaint you with the glories of heaven, the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. And let's now consider this call to labor earnestly, to be acquainted with it. Not just, as I said, be acquainted with it, but to labor to set our hope fully upon it. Remember verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on that grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The main command there in that verse is to fully hope in the grace that is coming. What a a wonderful command that is. What a sweet and easy and delightful command that is. Kids, could you imagine if if you got a commandment from your parents? If your parents commanded you this afternoon, maybe after dinner, or have another scoop of ice cream. If they commanded you, eat more ice cream. That would be a wonderful command. You would happily obey. The command to hope fully in all this grace that is coming to us is a very sweet and delightful command. You would think actually we wouldn't even need to be commanded. But we do. Such is the nature of our indwelling sin and corruption that we need to be commanded and not only do we need to be commanded to set our hope on it but we are called to exercise earnest diligent uh, labor in doing so we're called to prepare for action and to be sober-minded so that we can set our hope fully on this grace Hoping in heaven, delightful as it, I hope that there was some delight for you in reflecting upon that, but hoping in heaven is mental and spiritual warfare. That's what this language is referring to, preparing your minds for action. Uh, Literally, the phrase in the original language is girding the loins of your mind, which is an archaic uh, phrase of speech, but it's one that would have been familiar to the first readers in the in the culture of that day in the first century. The typical Roman attire would be a long tunic that would come down to the ankles, and so the the potential to to move quickly was hindered by this long flowing robe. And so, if someone a soldier Or someone else who needed to spring into action quickly, what they would do is they would—it was called girding the loins. They would pull up that tunic and kind of wrap it and strap it in like a belt, kind of. In fact, it's the same language that's used in Ephesians six when Paul speaks of the armor of God and he talks about putting on the belt of truth. It actually says girding up the loins of truth. So a soldier or an athlete or something, they would they would tuck their cloak in so that they would be able to move swiftly. And, and Peter's saying, You got to exercise that. You got to be ready for action. Uh, John Piper d- paraphrases this particular imagery by saying, Turn the robes of your mind into running shorts. This imagery, girding up the loins, preparing your minds for action, there's a, a readiness. We're to prepare ourselves for vigorous and sustained spiritual exertion. And that vigorous spiritual exertion is mind work. We're to prepare our minds for action. Dull minds produces weak hope. And that means we need to sober up that we can engage in this work faithfully. He says, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Now, that is a call, I have no doubt it is a call to not get physically intoxicated with alcohol or some other mind numbing substance. But I think it reaches far more than just that. I think this call to sober mindedness encompasses anything that might dull or numb our spiritual senses and capacities. This may be the biggest culprit. I can speak from my own personal experience of how this can dull and I'm not talking about doing anything outwardly uh, or, or grossly sinful and egregious with this. I'm just talking about like Wordle and Solitaire or endless YouTube videos watching old sports highlights from 1995 or something. It's talking about anything. Sober up. There's glory coming and it's so easy to have our minds get numbed and intoxicated by things that dull us to the spiritual glories that are presented before us that we're to be living for. This is, it's a war. Peter uses the same word, be sober-minded. In chapter five, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to Devour. The Christian, I said we're on a journey, it's a pilgrimage, we're in an armed struggle against a powerful opponent. And so you need to be girded up, you need to be clear-headed, thinking about things the right way, which is according to God's word and God's will. And it's hard work. It's hard to do, because this world is really filled with tribulations. This world is really hard. It gets exhausting. And in the midst of that exhaustion, it's easy to get drunk. And I'm not, again, I'm not mainly talking about alcohol, though maybe some of you actually do have. Some of you, it's possible. This is kind of a young, I'm actually one of the older people in the room, I think. Uh, This is a younger congregation than the one in Pittman. And it's possible, actually, that some of you, without ever getting drunk, have have begun to become too reliant upon alcohol. Just a glass of wine to end your day. And I would, I, would, I would fight. I would advocate for your freedom in Christ to, to have alcohol. But some of you in the name of Christian freedom need to be careful that you not become dependent upon something other than the hope that is set before you for your stability and peace and comfort right now. Now, that's I was not in my notes. But it might not be alcohol. That might not be the issue intoxications to worldliness go much deeper than any physical substance that we put in our bodies. Whatever keeps your mind off of where God calls it to be. Whatever would threaten to entice you from that vigorous and sustained spiritual exertion needed to hope fully in Christ's glorious appearing. Whatever keeps you from prayer. Why is it that we can watch a football game for three hours, but we can't spend one hour watching and praying. Whatever would keep you from prayer, whatever would keep you from God's word, whatever would keep you from fellowshipping with the saints, whatever would, would keep you from mindfulness of that hope of glory and ignoring God and his work, whatever would numb you to the dangers of our enemy and his scheming to to prowl and devour you anything that would hinder you from this is intoxicating you perhaps most of all would be the just the trials of this life if you were to query peter if we could interview peter i don't know i don't know this infallibly but if we were to interview peter about hey what is it like what were you when you said be sober like what was most burdening you I think just reading the whole letter, I think he might say the various trials, the fiery trials. I mean, he's been warning them about these trials and the suffering throughout the letter. And if you've been through tri- trials, can be intoxicating in a sense. If you th- I mean, dull, like just making you numb. I think if you were to go back and talk to Job, again, just speculating, maybe I shouldn't speculate, okay? If you want to correct my speculations, you have freedom to do so. He was, you know, Job started out very strong and then you get these chapters and chapters where he's lamenting the day of his birth and he's, he's basically challenging whether God is actually just. Like he, you know, again, he's a man of faith. He kept bringing it to God. So he is a model in respect. But I think if we were to talk to Job about the whole experience, he'd be like, it was like I was drunk. I was like, I, I forgot what I was thinking. I was crazy. I don't mean it in the first moment. I don't mean in the blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. I'm talking about all the chapters after that. Like I was talking crazy. Trials can make us drunk and we need clear-headedness. We, it's hard work in the midst of sufferings to turn away from the sufferings and to set your hope on grace that's coming. And, and I'm, I'm well acquainted with that. I'm well acquainted with those struggles, saints. Um, some of you, have asked me just as I've come in, like, how are you doing? And I'm not going to be bashful about telling you, like, it's not been a great season. Um, I've needed a book on heaven because I have tasted very tangibly that experience that King David writes about in Psalm 16 when he says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. When he speaks in Psalm 39 of disciplining a man with rebukes for sin and consuming like a moth what is dear to him. Uh, it has been a, a tiring season. And I have seen in me a surprising and concerning lack of fight. I have become a bit inebriated by the struggles I've grown dull and sluggish. Uh, I have failed to heed that exhortation written to the Hebrews. when, When the writer of Hebrews said, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you might not be sluggish. And I have not been earnest. And I have not been hopeful. I have grown sluggish and I have grown lazy. But preparing to preach, it's humbling to, to just realize like that's, you know, like you have, you have weeks like that. Do you have weeks like that? You have months like that? You still gotta get up. You still gotta do this. He's gotta do this still. And um, it's a means of grace for lazy, sluggish, immature Pastors. And so I know what I'm getting ready to talk to you guys about. (laughs) And so yesterday I woke up. I I girded up the loins of my mind. It was hard because I've been sluggish. And when you get sluggish, you get a little sleep, a little slumber, the Proverbs say, a little little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come upon you like a bandit. And I've seen that in my soul. So I had to gird up the loins yesterday because I'm getting ready to talk to you (laughs) about hope. And and so I just sang in my own devotions, the promised land is calling. We're almost home. And not a tear shall fall then. We're almost home. Make ready now, your souls, for that kingdom come. No turning back. We're almost home. And I was singing it. I do a whisper sing in my house because I'm not trying to wake everybody up. It's a whisper sing, which is probably better that way. But that song made me think of another song, which I believe you sing from time to time here. Mine are tears, and so I sang this one. Mine are tears in times of sorrow, darkness not yet understood. Through the valley I must travel where I see no earthly good. But mine is peace that flows from heaven and the strength in times of need. I know my pain will not be wasted. Christ completes his work in me. And it came to my mind because even though I've been a little bit of a hot mess lately, I've memorized some scripture in the past. And so it came to my mind when I sang that. How do I know that? Because his word says this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He's got a glory that's even greater than what I could have asked or imagined. And the sufferings of this present time are actually a part of how he's preparing the glory for me. And then I went to the Bible, which I've been pitiful at. I said this to my church uh, two Sundays ago, I think, or three Sundays ago. And I had people tell me this was one of the more encouraging things that I said in the message, which is kind of discouraging, but people are trying to encourage. It was really encouraging when you said how you just fall so far behind in your Bible reading plan that you had given up for the year. That's how I've been. So far behind, so dull, so sluggish, I'm like, I ain't going to get through. Not, it's not going to happen this year. It's the first year in 22 years, it's not going to happen. But I got to have something. I know I got to have something. So I'm just reading the Psalms slow. There's a lot of hope in the Psalms. And so I read in, I read in Psalm 48. I'm, I'm, rap, I'm, I'm landing the plane, I promise. I, I, this is great. I have no idea when I got up here, but I'm landing the plane. And I'm reading this translation by a guy named Alec Matir. He's, a, he's a, a, an Old Testament scholar, so this is going to be different lang- wording that you're accustomed to. But Psalm 48, it says, Yahweh is great and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. That's, that's that home I've been talking about. In the city of our God, the mountain of his holiness, beautiful in elevation, the joy of all the earth. God has made himself known As a fortress. And then at the end of the psalm, it says, This is God, our God, forever and ever. It is he who will guide us unto dying. It doesn't say that in the ESV, but that is actually in the Hebrew. He will guide us unto dying. And that made me think of another hymn. So I sang. I almost started singing it. You don't want me to do that. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, Pilgrim through a barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. And I found hope yesterday. And my soul was actually encouraged. But it took some work. It took some effort. It's a hard work. It's a work well worth it. I'm sure I'm going to struggle again, just as I imagine you'll have struggles. And I just want you to know, saints, it's a good work. Uh, he, gives a lot of re- he gives a lot of tips about how to engage that work. Half the book is, is about the glory, and half the book is him telling you how to fight for it. I, I could get into all that. I, I kind of wanted to get into it, but I'm just, just, I just want to tell you it's work. And it's a good work. A work I hope that you've been encouraged to pursue this morning. Not, not just to pursue yourself, but actually to pursue together. That's the last thing I want to leave you with. Pursue it together. And I will... It's, it flows from the verse. Because, you see, you don't see this in English. But Ben, ben will... You'll he'll, he'll, he'll back me on this. All the verbs, all, it's all plural in 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore... Preparing y'all's minds for action. Y'all being sober-minded set y'all's hope fully on the grace that we brought to y'all at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You think that's pretty funny, huh? It's, it's corporate. So the, the you is a believing you. The, believe is a corp, the, believe, the, the you is a corporate you. A congregational you. Let it not be, let it not be that the saints in Williamstown would gather on a Lord's day without setting your gaze on that city that is to come. That city with foundations, whose designer and builder is God. I'll give you one last quote and then I'm, I'm done. What page is this on? I wrote it down. Yeah. Another help, so he's got many helps. How do we fight for this hope? Another help to this heavenly life is to be talking about it often, especially with those who can speak from their hearts and have seasoned themselves with a heavenly nature. It is a pity, and I just really this resonated with me in my years of being a Christian, and I I don't blame others, but it's I'm a part of it. It's a pity that Christians should ever meet together on earth without some talk of their meeting in heaven. It is a pity. So much precious time is spent among Christians in vain discourses, foolish jesting, and useless disputes, with not a sober word of heaven among them. We should meet together to warm our spirits with discussion of our rest. Get together, fellow Christians, and talk of the affairs of your country and kingdom. Comfort one another with such words. Should Christians not delight themselves in talking about Christ and the heirs of heaven in talking of their inheritance? Hoping in heaven is a hard work. It's a really good work. And it's a work that we should pursue and engage in together. And that is what we're doing right there. Right? You understand that? as often 1 Corinthians 11:26 as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the lord's death when until he comes so if you ever thought if you ever thought i don't really do whether i come or not it doesn't really matter like i'm not playing the guitar i'm not going to be on a microphone i'm not doing anything publicly i'm not preaching does it really matter if i come when you hold up that bread and you hold up that cup and you eat and drink, you're proclaiming. You are a preacher in that moment. And you're preaching to me. He's coming again. He's coming again. And you know what I means? He's risen, right? You don't proclaim someone's death that he's coming again unless he rose from the dead. He's risen. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. We're almost home. We're almost home. We're doing that together. We do that together here. Do it for one another. Let us set our hope on these things, beloved, and let us encourage one another in them. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the great hope that we have. We pray that you would help us to be vigilant, help us to be diligent, help us to engage in mental warfare, that we might set our hope fully on that grace that is to come. We, we know many great pleasures. We, we know many enjoyments in this life, but if we put our hope in them, we will be saddened. We will be disappointed. We will be let down because here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We pray that you would help us to seek it with all of our hearts and that you would use now even the bread and the cup to strengthen our souls as we both look back to what you have done for us to secure that hope, and as we will look forward to what you will one day do, how you will come and you will make all things new and you will wipe away every tear from our eyes and sufferings will cease, sorrows will die, uh, every longing will be satisfied, joy unspeakable will flood our souls. We will be truly home and we long for that day, Father. Stir up our hope and keep us fighting for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank <music> you.